You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. All right, everyone, welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode 52. Uh, this one I called an audible for. We are talking about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. Uh, I did a post on this the other day, and um, there's a lot of people that um, um, are not very happy with that post. Um, also, you know, it's, just, it's very polarizing, and it's very polarizing in the research world um, and I think a lot of that is due to in the research world, they're looking at it from both angles. However, in the public perception, the media reports of CTE have been so one-sided that everyone just believes or thinks that as common knowledge that concussions cause long-term brain damage. However, from a research standpoint, this actually hasn't been even remotely close to being proven. The research that we currently have is mostly based on what's called case series, which is where the brains are donated and we have like a, a, a bunch of them. We have over, you know, 200, I think. Um, but we're not comparing that with control brains. And so a case series is actually kind of the lowest form of research that you have. And then from that, you're supposed to build on top of that and, you know, have controlled trials and things like that that start happening along the way. So in the CTE world, we're actually very at the very low end of the research. Now, you know, it's just based on what the media portrays because the media has jumped all over this. The media loves clicks, the media loves advertising, and so they push these stories out. They love to vilify, you know, the NFL and NHL for, you know, not taking their responsibilities and everything else. And so um, my goal here is to just present as much of the evidence as I can from both sides so people get a balanced view. I'm probably going to get a lot of hate for this. Um, from people that have family members that have gone through this, from people that may be going through this currently right now and be under the impression that they, they have CTE perhaps. Um, and, you know, that's because I think in what the media has portrayed and rather than, you know, obviously you can't dive into the research to the extent that, that someone in my position can. So I'm trying to disseminate all of that and kind of present a balanced view of where we're at because I think ultimately as much good as CTE um, media reports are doing for concussion prevention, I think that also we're doing a lot of damage to those, especially at the family level or those at the former athlete level that may be currently going through it and thinking that there's no way out when in fact there may be. Um, so I just don't think that everyone's getting presented with all the information and all the facts. And so I'm going to try and break it down today. Like I said, I'm probably going to get a ton of hate for this. I know there's people out there that are passionate about this, have loved ones that are suffering from it. It's very real for you and it hits close to home. Some of you might be dealing with it personally. And it may be that concussions are the cause for some of this stuff, but it also may not be. I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm just saying that at this point in time, there's so many unknown variables that we can't just hang our hat and assume that it's concussion related or related to contact sports. My goal is to provide that balanced um, report. So I'm just going to start off by saying I am not financially incentivized in any way. I'm not being paid by the NFL, the NHL, or any other sports franchise or organization whatsoever. In fact, 
I own a friggin' concussion management company, and if anyone should be, you know, getting on the CTE fear wagon, it should be me because it'd probably be good for business. If I was smart, that's probably the position I would take. My goal is not necessarily to do that. My goal is to provide the truth because I think ultimately the truth is always going to win in any scenario. And again, you can hate me for it. I'm just trying to prevent or present the information as it currently stands. My intention is to inform. Ultimately, when you take a position that goes against what you've been hearing in the media, those on the kind of, you know, believer side of things, and I use that term lightly, on the believer side of things are probably going to do your best to dig in your heels, try to send me a bunch of evidence that you've dug up that proves your point. Um, and I'll just tell you right now that I've probably read it. Um, I've read everything there is on this topic, at least as much as I can, and I try to look at it from both ends of the spectrum to try and have an overall viewpoint, bird's eye view of where we are at with everything right now. So don't send me stuff, don't send me a whole bunch of stuff and say, look at this, look at that. I've probably read it, there's probably problems with it, um, and I just don't have the time to go through it all. I'm just gonna present this, say my piece, and be done with it. Okay, so first off, what is CTE? Well, CTE is a neurodegenerative disease. It falls under the classification of a tauopathy, which means hyperphosphorylated tau protein in the brain. There's over 20 different types of tauopathies. The most well-known is Alzheimer's disease, which is a collection of tau protein as well as beta amyloid plaques within the brain. Um, it can only be diagnosed currently on autopsy. However, we are starting to make strides into being able to see tau deposition in life through PET scans. Uh, it's still quite early stage, but you know, obviously there's strides being made in that. So I'm not gonna get into that. So, so far, you can only be diagnosed with these types of conditions, Alzheimer's, um, CTE, post-mortem. So after death, okay? there's the initial point. 20 different types of tauopathies. Alzheimer is the well-known. Tau is a protein that is located within brain cells themselves. Within the neurons and axons, you have this protein called tau. It is a structural protein that helps to hold the structure of the neuron itself. If there's damage to the neuron, potentially due to uh, reactive oxygen species, inflammation, um, biomechanical damage, uh, activation of glial cells, and apoptosis or cell death, that tau protein can aggregate and clump into what's called neurofibrillary tangles, okay? So that's a collection of hyperphosphorylated tau, and it's called neurofibrillary tangles. In Alzheimer's, you have neurofibrillary tangles, but you also have these beta amyloid plaques. In CTE, you don't have beta amyloid, but in some cases they found it anyway but you have these neurofibrillary tangles and they're located at specific areas of the brain. The differentiator between what CTE is and what Alzheimer's disease is, is the patterning in which this stuff appears. In CTE, these plaques, and, or these, sorry, these, these tangles tend to appear at what they call the depths of the sulci or the sulci, however you want to say that. The brain has these kind of grooves and valleys within it. At the bottom of the valley is called the sulcus or a sulci at the top of it is called a gyri. So at the base of the sulcus, when you cut the brain in half, and you can see at the bottom of these um, sulci or sulci, there's these neurofibrillary tangles around that area, kind of at the border from white matter to gray matter. It's also around blood vessels. So you have this tau deposition around small blood vessels in the brain. The theory behind where that is and why that is is because that's the point of stress and strain during head impact and concussion. Okay, so everyone following me? So it's a patterning thing. In Alzheimer's disease, those plaques and tangles tend to be deeper within the brain. 
So not necessarily at the outer cortex like CTE is, but more diffusely spread throughout deeper areas of the brain. That's the differencing in the patterning, okay? So tau protein can happen in a variety of diseases. Like I said, there's 20. When we talk about what CTE is in terms of its patterning, we have to also consider other potential diseases that are already out there. So there's a couple of them that have very similar pathologic criteria to CTE, and they're simply related to age. As we age, things degenerate. Okay, Alzheimer's, there's no necessarily you know, one cause of Alzheimer's disease. Um, they're touting inflammation as a potential cause um, and some other things, but here's some that are just related to age. Primary age-related tauopathy, P-A-R-T. It is characterized by neurofibrillary tangles with no beta amyloid plaques, which may or may not be associated with cognitive impairment. Same thing as CTE, same type of diagnostic criteria. You have the, you have the tangles, but no plaques. Then you have age-related tau astrogliopathy, which is ARTAG, A-R-T-A-G, and that is phosphorylated tau located at the depths of the cortical sulci, just like CTE, and also found, found around small cerebral blood vessels, just like CTE, found in people with no history of head trauma and it's completely just related to age. So then you have to ask yourself, how many of these conditions, there, how many of these brains of these former athletes that we're opening up just have one of these other things that we're automatically attributing to concussions or head trauma when in fact it may just be age-related changes? Okay, so we have to ask that question. Tau accumulation can happen in the brain for no apparent reason, okay? And problem number two, it can happen in a very similar pattern to CTE. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we know this isn't the other conditions? Okay, the second question is, if these conditions are different, let's say they are distinct conditions, CTE is something over here, RTAG, PRTA, or PART are different conditions from one another, then the question is, if those conditions can develop and tau protein can get deposited in the brain without head trauma, and then we find CTE over here, how do we just assume that that tau protein is then related to head trauma, right? Tau can happen in 20 different conditions in the brain with no history of head trauma. And then over here, we, we see tau and then we automatically assume that it's head trauma. It may not be related to head trauma at all. We have no idea what it could be related to. So. Um, Boston's research has been heavily criticized because they only look at former athletes and they don't necessarily look at controls. We have to know how prevalent this patterning of tau deposition is in the normal population because maybe what we're seeing is actually just aging, age-related changes in certain players, certain people. I might have it, my whole staff might have it, all these people might have it, we don't know yet. Right? So we have to see how prevalent it is in the normal population before we can understand, is this actually something that's unique specifically to former athletes? And that's where the research falls short. It's all we have is, have is a case series. So more research needs to be done looking at controls or people without head trauma. Okay. Um, my post was exactly on this. So Grant Iverson just put out a study, and this is what my Instagram post was on, and they found that five out of the six subjects that they looked at that had no history of contact sports participation, no known history, because somebody corrected me on that, no known history of head trauma or concussion or anything like that, five out of six of them met the pathological diagnostic criteria for CTE. So CTE is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It is a neurodegenerative condition that is 
that is attributed to head trauma, yet you have people without head trauma that have it. How can we justify that? How can we bring that together? Okay, we might be looking at something that's completely unrelated to head trauma. Hazrati did another, found this again in somebody with ALS, somebody that had never played contact sports, never had a history of concussion, and had pathological criteria for CTE. So again, we have to we have to consider that maybe what we're finding in this neurodegenerative condition is something that's normal or unrelated to head trauma. We don't know. Speculation is that it's related to head trauma, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Okay. Next, let's talk about the development of tau. There's been a few cases where athletes that have been very young in their high school or teen years or into college have committed suicide. They've donated, their family has donated the brain and the brain has been examined and has found tau protein in it. Well, we shouldn't be finding tau protein in young brains of that age, right? Well, the BRAC stages of Alzheimer's disease, the original study that was done by BRAC looked at 2,300 autopsies of people of varying ages. And what they looked for was neurofibrillary tangles because the assumption is that you don't just get Alzheimer's all at once. Right? All of a sudden, plaques don't develop or tangles don't develop. You're going to have neurofibrillary tangles that are developing over time to eventually lead potentially to Alzheimer's disease. So here's what they found. Uh, neurofibrillary tangles, so 2,300 autopsies, neurofibrillary tangles were found in 10% of people in their teenage years, more than 20% of people in their 20s, nearly 40% of people in their 30s, and greater than 40% of people in their 40s and older. So to find tau protein inside the brain of somebody in their teens is not necessarily that uncommon or unusual because 10% of people in their teenage years will already have neurofibrillary tangles starting to develop, irrespective of head trauma, okay? So finding tau in the brain doesn't necessarily mean that this person had CTE or that it was related to that in any way, okay? It might be. I'm not going to say that it's not. I'm just saying that it might not be. We have to consider what is the normal development cause of, you know, other diseases and how do we automatically assume that this one is related to head trauma when these ones aren't? We just can't say that, I don't think. So let's talk about other things that might be related to tau. Number one, drug abuse, in particular opioids. Opioids are obviously a very strong pain killer. Ramage in 2005 found that there was increased deposition of tau in the brains of drug abusers over the age of 40 years old. Kotler et al. in 2011 found that 52% of NFL players reported significant opioid use during their NFL careers. Half of them. Half of NFL players report significant opioid use during their careers. 71% of those considered themselves as abusers of opioid medications when they played football. So how do we assume, we know that opioid medications cause tau protein buildup, how are we assuming now that the tau we're seeing in the brain is due to concussions and not due to opioids or not due to something else or not due to alcohol or not due to anything? We don't know, okay? Um, uh, Love it all, 2014, current opioid use among NFL retirees is three times higher than that of the general population. GATS, 2017, opioid use is linked with similar symptoms to CTE, such as memory impairment, perception issues, and altered psychomotor function. So now we're clouding the clinical picture in life and also the pathological features in death, okay? 
there's other things that could be involved and we just don't know. We have to flush all this out to try and figure it out. Okay, let's talk about the, the symptoms that people are experiencing in life. Typically, this is depression, anger, rage, suicidality, cognitive decline, memory impairments, forgetfulness, this type of stuff. Okay, these are very real, troubling issues for those that have it and the family members that are going through it at this time. And I definitely do not want to seem like I'm downplaying this in any way, okay? I just want you to be aware of everything around it. Guskowitz 2005 found that retired players with three or more concussions had a five-fold increase in mild cognitive impairment versus players that didn't report concussions. Okay, so if you had three or more concussions, you had a five times greater prevalence of having mild cognitive impairment than those that weren't reporting any concussions. However, what's interesting about this, because the theory of CTE is not necessarily concussions, it's contact sports participation. The number of NFL players in this particular study was a large study, 2,500 people. The number of NFL players or the percentage of NFL players that had mild cognitive impairment was 2.9%. If you look at the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment in people of the same age in the general population, it ranges between 5% and 30% of the general population. So what you see here is that people that played football have less of a chance of having mild cognitive impairment than people who didn't play football. That's interesting. Guskowitz 2007, same sample of people, same 2,500 individuals. He found that, and this one was on depression, he found that 11% of former NFL players had either a current or past diagnosis of depression. So the prevalence of lifetime depression in former NFL players was, was found to be 11%. Um, in the general U.S. population, the lifetime prevalence of depression is 16.5%. So we see again that former NFL players are less likely to have depression than members of the general population. Suicide risk. Iverson et al. found that suicide risk in former NFL players was lower than for men of the same age in the general United States population. So again, if you played in the NFL, you are less likely to commit suicide than if you did not play in the NFL, statistically. So all of these things, you're actually less likely for all of these things, yet it's reported on so heavily and so prevalently because the people that are usually involved are former professional athletes. When, you know, when somebody in the general population commits suicide, it doesn't make media headlines. When a former player does, it does. And so you start to have this one-sided view thinking that all of these players are going through such tremendous you know, struggles, and some of them definitely are, but these struggles are present in people that have no history of head trauma at all either. You are actually less likely to have these things if you played in the, in the NFL than if you did not play in the NFL. So something to keep in mind. We also end up with a problem of self-report. Some of these studies rely on how many concussions you had, and all of this is based on really bad documentation of medical records, and so most of it's relying on you to remember how many concussions you had. And the research on this has shown that we're really, really bad at it. When you compare somebody's memory of how many concussions they had to actual clinical documentation of those concussions, there's a huge discrepancy. And the other interesting thing is that studies that will look at asking people how many concussions they had and then following up with them in 10 years find that the numbers fluctuate. 
even after retirement. So you say, oh, I had five concussions in my career. If you ask that same person 10 years later, even though they haven't played any football, they'll say, oh, I must have had 10 concussions during my career. So the number increases. And the interesting thing is that number increases in proportion to what people are reporting symptomatically. If this person starts reporting that, yeah, I'm starting to have some memory impairments, their number of concussions automatically goes up. So what you get here is this confirmation type bias where as my memory gets worse, my number of concussions goes up and now I have a positive correlation between the number of concussions and memory problems. But it's not, it's not necessarily factual, okay? So that, all that research becomes flawed trying to rely on human memory to determine how many concussions that somebody has had. So it becomes difficult. The symptoms people are experiencing, depression and life changes. So I'm gonna go in this one a little bit. Retirement is one of the most depressing times of people's lives, regardless of the career that you have. I hear Pam sneezing like crazy in there. Depression is one of the most um, depressing, or sorry, retirement is one of the most depressing times in people's life, regardless of what profession you're in. Um, this has been found in military workers, in farmers, etc., where you have a sense of purpose, you have a sense of who you are. I am a firefighter, I am a soldier. I am a professional athlete, I am a farmer, then all of a sudden you wake up the next day and you are not a professional athlete, you are not a farmer, you are not a soldier, you are not a firefighter, who are you? And that right there becomes difficult for people. Changes in life, changes in purpose become very difficult and they're one of the most depressing and challenging times from a mental health perspective for anybody. I'm gonna read you a few quotes the first one is a story that was published by a guy named Nate Jackson, who's a former NFL player. And this one uh, kind of hits home. So, and make no mistake, it is the athletic mind of the athlete that connects the dots. Brilliant performance artists, a lot of them, mistaken as dummies because they never learned to file a report or calculate a spreadsheet. But try visualizing an explosively violent and incredibly intricate physical task and then doing it with your two hands, your body, your limbs, your connections, the synapses, the will and the fire in real time against the most dominant members of the species. That's genius too. I suppose that's the crux of the disenchantment then, the suicides, the depression, the regression and the underlying sadness that follows a professional football player off the field and into life. Aside from the science of it all, which I'm intentionally avoiding here, the psychological effect can be the most damning. The task for which I have trained every fiber of my body, solidified with a daily rendering of the mind, capitulated in the soul and exalted by a subsect of society is gone. It no longer needs me. I am unneeded. Make no mistake, I still have the ability to act violently and decisively and crush someone, but I can't use those skills, the ones for which I was trained and praised, because if I do, I will hurt someone and I will go to jail. So that's that. The day before I was cut from the NFL, for the very last time, I was a very good football player. Same with the day after. Same with this very moment, four years after it ended for good. But what else then? What do I do with this skill if I don't want to coach football or go on television and talk about football? I watched the PBS Frontline documentary. Scary crap to be confronted with. Football brains being sliced open and containing CTE. Scary and not at all healthy for me going forward. Now I'm familiar with the intricacies of a debate that suggests that my friends and I are probably screwed, statistically speaking, but it's hard to move on because here I am writing about brain injuries, putting it all into my mind, giving me twisted thoughts. And I swear that when I read about CTE or watch a story about it on TV, I feel an electrical current shoot through my brain. I forgot where my keys are. Is that life or is that CTE? I can't find a job. Must be the tau protein buildup. 
I am sad and I am depressed. And suicidal thoughts like raindrops come down from the sky on seemingly sunny afternoons. Is this science or the realization that my life peaked in my 20s? I have no skills other than football and no idea what else to do. So just think about that, taking that through the professional athlete mindset of everything that I've done and everything I've lived for is no longer there and I'm 20, I'm 25. What do I do now? That right there can cause all sorts of mental health complications and everyone seems to want to blame concussions or head trauma for it, but what about post-professional athlete retirement? What about transition into life? How much are we caring for our athletes during that time period? Can we affect change in this? Can we transition our athletes better into society and into life past football? And potentially mitigate some of these things. Maybe they're not related to head trauma at all. Maybe it's related to this. Here's another quote right here from Ronda Rousey. MMA fighter, she was undefeated, she was doing very, very well, and then somebody knocked her out in a fight. And here is her quote. After losing a fight, what am I if I am not this anymore? I was literally sitting there thinking about killing myself. I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? Okay? So think about that when you're thinking about athletes that are currently depressed, currently going through this. It might not necessarily be the concussion end of things or the head trauma end of things. It might be, and I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just saying that there's other things that could be at play here, okay? There were studies done by Buffalo looking at former NHL and NFL athletes, comparing them to non-contact athletes, okay? I think it was soccer players or swimmers or something. And they examined them on a range of neurocognitive measures, looking at cognitive impairment, executive function, signs of early dementia, and they also looked at mental health um, you know, issues, and imaging. So they looked at various functional imaging studies. Here's the results. Former NFL and NHL players perceived themselves, so they thought they perceived themselves as having impaired executive function, but when actually tested on neurocognitive measures, they were normal for their age. They found no significant difference for mild cognitive impairment between any of the groups, contact or non-contact athletes. Contact sport athletes, here's the difference, were more anxious and more likely to report unusual beliefs and experiences. The conclusion of the studies, the results underscore an apparent disconnect between public perceptions and evidence-based conclusions about the inevitability of CTE and the potential neurodegenerative effect on former athletes from contact sports. So the difference is that they perceive themselves as having impairments, but when tested, test normal. They think there's something wrong with them, but they test normal. So your brain is very powerful. If you start to believe and start to think that something's wrong with you, you're going to find little examples of it throughout your day that kind of reaffirm this. Again, I forgot where my keys are. I forget where my freaking keys are all the time, okay? I walked into a room and I can't remember why I'm there. Why? Well, automatically, if this person is thinking that there's something wrong with them cognitively, that right there is gonna click into their mind, they're gonna think, holy shit, it's happening again. It's real, I have a problem, I have a problem, I have a problem, I have a problem. And now it just becomes the repetitive thing that gets told to themselves where you believe that you have a problem and you can't get around it, right? 
this is where the mental health aspect comes into this and the symptoms look very, very much the same. So you need to be able to take a look at this and say, maybe it's not concussions. Maybe I just need to get my anxiety under control. Maybe I need to get depression under control. Okay. Maybe the depression is a result of concussions, but maybe it's just a part of life. It's a part of retirement. It's a part of other things. It's a part of opioids or drugs or alcohol or anything else that may have occurred throughout someone's life. Okay. This stuff can happen to people that have no history of concussion whatsoever. Okay, now lastly, we have to look at the people, the symptoms that people experience in life, and we have to relate them to the findings we find post-mortem. So when we look at Alzheimer's, for example, we have tau protein built up in the brain. But did you guys know that in about half of people that are diagnosed with Alzheimer's in life, when they die and they do an autopsy on their brain, half the time they have no evidence of Alzheimer's in their brain at all. Then the reverse is also true. When people die with no cognitive impairment whatsoever, they open it up, 50% of the time, they have Alzheimer's in their brain. So how do we know that the findings we're seeing pathologically on, on autopsy actually are the cause of the symptoms we're seeing in life? There's a disconnect there. Similar in CTE, some of the athletes that were ultimately diagnosed as having CTE did not have any symptoms in life whatsoever. They actually donated their brains as control athletes. I played football, didn't really have any type of cognitive issues in life, but here's my brain. CTE, okay? So why do some people have symptoms and other people do not? This is another question that has to be answered. Did I see that already? I've already done this page. Okay, so in summary, I'm trying to present a, a broad view. Uh, there's some evidence on the CTE side as well. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the media has covered that extensively. There is evidence to suggest that the earlier age of onset for playing co competitive sports tends to have a, um, a decrease in cognitive abilities that happens earlier in people that start contact sports later. There's a big argument right now for having only flag football until the age of 14. I'm a huge proponent of that. I think that's a great idea. There's no need for contact younger than that. Um, and there's some evidence to suggest that earlier age of contact, earlier age of, of concussion might increase this accelerated decline hypothesis where maybe people age at a faster rate than if they didn't. But there's still a lot of questions that remain to be answered. I still think that, yes, we should be protecting our youth. Yes, we should be trying to prevent concussions as much as we possibly can. Yes, we should be doing things like baseline testing, like having proper management, like having proper return to play strategies to make sure that we're not doubling up on concussions. We're not having them too close together. We're having appropriate uh, recovery. All of these things, we should be doing our best to do this at. But when it comes to CTE and what the long-term effects are, we are so far away from understanding, A, is this related to concussions, the findings we're finding pathologically because we find it in people that don't have concussions, okay? Secondly, do the symptoms that people are experiencing, are they related to concussions, depression, anxiety, all that stuff? Or is it just a part of life? Is it a part of retirement? Is it a part of post-retirement transition into regular life? Um, um, you know, all of these things that I've basically just covered, there's still a lot of question marks around it. And so, like I said, I know that I'll probably get a lot of hate on for this. And I'm not trying to be polarizing and I'm not trying to downplay what anyone's experiences or what you're currently going through or what your family members may going, be going through. I'm just saying that it may not necessarily be related to concussions or contact sports. There may be other answers. Because it, all you want to do is find the answer of what it is. If we can get mental health counseling for somebody, if we can provide them with some medication that will uh, reduce anxiety and all these other things, maybe those symptoms start to go away. Maybe things start to get better. Exercise, there's evidence on that. So there's a lot of things I think that 
the problem with the CTE debate is that there's there's you know there's no treatment for it and everyone just assumes it's a death sentence and you have people that are living their lives thinking that they have this and that there's no treatment for it and that's really the wrong approach that's where I have a problem with it because it may not be that it may be whatever and there may be treatments for the specific symptoms that you're currently experiencing and that's what I want to encourage everyone to take away from this is that the state of the literature is not what you read necessarily in the media because they want to hype it up they want the clicks they want the eyes they want the story they want the advertising revenue that comes with you know creating this um, this monster this demon of, of you know the professional sports leagues or whatever that aren't doing their job I agree that they should be doing more to protect their athletes but I also think that it could be something that can be done on transitioning athletes into life after sports providing them with this level of, of evidence and just being honest and saying look there could be potential risks where we don't understand all of it you know there's more that needs to be done in terms of research you have to know that we don't know all of this stuff but you know we're going to try and do our best to protect you and have open honest dialogue throughout the process in which you play and i think that's where we need to go with this okay thank you everyone for joining us today again i hope that i didn't offend, it, offend anyone or anything like that that's not my intention i promise you i swear to you my objective is just to present as much truth and evidence and fact as I can to try and make sure that you guys have the best information moving forward to make more informed decisions and understand you know a bit of the bias that may be included in the media reports uh, did we have any questions come in really that's surprising actually yeah that's surprising okay guys uh, thanks again and uh, join us next week and we'll have another one for you. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.